Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at 11 verses this morning. And that's, I've entitled the message, Blessings of the Justified. And because the outline that I developed some time ago uh, is a little hard to follow if I don't give you a printed, printed uh, copy of it. That's why I've given you a copy this morning. Hopefully you have a copy of that. But it's, uh, I want to talk about blessings of the justified as we see in chapters in chapter one or chapter five, verses one through eleven. Now we've already studied justification in chapter three and chapter four, but this will increase our understanding of how good it is to be justified as we look at these verses. Follow in your Bibles as I read. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have now received the atonement. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the privilege to share your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be among in front of all these people today and I count it a, a great responsibility, Lord, to rightly divide the word of God, so I pray you'd help me to do that and that all of us together might understand how good it is to be justified. And if somebody has not trusted Jesus, I pray that today they would. We want to pause and thank you, Lord, for the decision of the Supreme Court on Friday, and we'll remember June the 24th for a long time. I remember where I was on that day when I received the news. I was in the car and and turned the radio on and received the news, And it was a time of rejoicing and thanks because we've prayed many times about that. And so we thank you. And I pray that you protect the judges, Lord, who were involved in that decision. And I just pray that you might uh, bring peace to our country. We know there's already been disturbances, but we pray that you'll bring peace to our country. And while I know this is just one step, Lord, there's many things wrong with the United States. But I just ask that you might... Uh, help us to be thankful for what has happened. And Lord, I just ask now that you give understanding as we look into your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Friday, June the 24th, was a good day for America. For close to 50 years, our country, through the, through the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade, has, has, has said that the killing of innocent babies in the womb was a constitutional right, and therefore through warped minds and through warped reasoning, uh, they, many people said it was okay, it was right to do it. 
Parents and doctors who have participated in the killing of the unborn have been guilty of shedding innocent blood, and the Bible has a lot to say about innocent blood. But not only have they been guilty, our, our government has been complicit, along with many citizens in the United States, millions of them. Because we have agreed and accepted that decision as our legal justification to allow those brutal murders of the unborn. But on Friday, Roe v. Wade was overturned. That makes clear that the U.S. Constitution does not give women the right to abort their unborn babies. Now, I realize that states will now determine what they are to do, what they will allow. And many states will uh, allow abortions and some all the way through nine months. Some will take stricter opinions on that, but it should be in the, in the state's uh, responsibility to determine that not a federal not a federal mandate from the Supreme Court that says that. So that was good that happened. There's still problems. But Friday's decision was a good decision. And therefore Friday was a good day for America. But we as Christians were never in doubt about the wrongness of abortion. Before there was ever a, cons- a US constitution, there was the word of God, the Bible. And the Bible makes clear that babies are made by God in the womb, and it's God doing the work. And for an abortionist to come in, they're saying, actually, God, stop what you're doing. We don't like it. God's doing that in the womb. Every baby is valuable in the eyes of God and a gift from God. The psalm says, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Every baby is made in God's image. We are different from animals. Animals are not made in God's image. We are made in God's image. And therefore, a killing of a baby is actually murder. And the Bible makes that clear, that it's not the right of an individual to take another individual's life. God has given the right of government and capital punishment under certain circumstances, one of those being murder, to take the life of an individual. But it's never a person's right to do that. We know, all of us know that the Bible teaches us, teaches that. We as Christians know that. But there are many things in the Bible that uh, God makes clear to us, but seems like many Christians don't fully understand it. Now, we can understand why unbelievers don't understand the Word of God. They don't have the Spirit of God to help them understand. It's a spiritual book, and they need the Spirit of God to understand the Bible. We can understand that. But there are many Christians who might know the seriousness of abortion and know that's wrong, but there are many things in the Bible that God tells us that we don't seem to comprehend completely, and one of those is justification. And that's what we're talking about today. Christians should understand what justification means. Last week, we defined it as well as I think the previous week, and that is justification means to be declared righteous. It's the idea of God as a judge standing, and you're before him, and she says, I declare you to be righteous. Now, we all know that in and of ourselves, we're not. But when Jesus forgives us our sins, he takes them away from us. He puts in in that place of those sins the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we're clothed in his righteousness. And as the Bible says in Ephesians, we are accepted in the beloved. I'm never accepted because I'm Earl McGuffey. I'm never accepted because I'm a preacher. I'm never accepted because I've done good things. I'm never accepted because I'm religious. I'm accepted only because of Jesus. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I would be sunk and everybody else would be as well. 
There would be no hope without Jesus. So righteousness is, in, is imputed to us when we trust Jesus as our Savior. And that way, God can look at us and declare us to be righteous because in his eyes we are because we have the righteousness of Jesus applied to our account. Because of this, God blesses us with many spiritual blessings. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I just want to read it to you. I didn't mark it, but I want to read it to you. Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And there in the church of Ephesus were like all churches. They were differing degrees of understanding among Christians. There were baby Christians and there were full-grown Christians. There were Christians who had been saved for many years and those who had just gotten saved. But Paul said this, that in Christ we have all things. God has given us all things. And so all, is, all the spiritual blessings are ours. Now, I've been saved since I was 22 years old, and I'm 77 right now, so that's been a long time. But if somebody today came out from outside and they came into the auditorium today and they sat down and they, were, they didn't know Christ as Savior, they were not saved. In fact, their life was a, was a wreck. They had committed all kinds of sin and everybody knew it and they were known in the area as a big, bad sinner. And yet that day they heard the gospel and they came down the aisle and they trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. I could stand by that person who just got saved and I could say, you have everything I have. I don't have more than you have. You have everything that I have in Christ. And they're counted righteous and God treats them as such and it gives them all the spiritual blessings because they trusted Jesus as their Savior. You see, the thing that makes the difference is Jesus. If you have him, you have life. If you have him, you have abundance of, of, of spiritual blessings, and they're found in Jesus Christ. So every believer has these blessings, but not every believer understands it. Not every believer appropriates what they have. I imagine you've heard of, of cases. Many years ago, I read of a case where a man was found to be a homeless man, and uh, he went around begging for food and all of that, and he died one day. And then they, and they, taking him to the, the undertaker, they discovered that in his pockets were thousands of dollars. And they looked into it and found that this man was a wealthy man. He had bank accounts that all kinds of money. And what was true of him, he was wealthy. He had all the necessary money to buy his food, to buy a place to live, to have a luxurious lifestyle, but he didn't avail himself of it. You know, that's true of some Christians. We ha all of us have all in Christ. You don't have more than me, and I don't have more than you in Jesus Christ. We have all spiritual blessings, but not every Christian avails themselves of all the spiritual blessings that we have. We don't understand all that we have in Christ. So this morning, I want us to talk about that, the blessings of the justified. And as I've given you the outline, and I did it because, truthfully, my outline's a little hard to understand, <laughs> so it might help. But... Uh, the blessings of the justified, from this passage, I've divided into three things. First of all, the possessions that we have to enjoy, a promise to embrace, 
and a praise to express. Those are our blessings from this passage. First of all, the possessions we enjoy. This is found in verses 1 to 8. We have great privileges. We have great privileges. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have. So, a result of justification. Being justified by faith, we have. What do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Peace with God. Now, before you got saved, you were not at peace with God. Now, you might have thought you were, but you weren't. Before you were saved, the Bible says you were an enemy of Christ. And you were in the devil's family. You were opposed to God, and you were not his friend. You were his enemy. That's what God says. You might want to disagree with that, but you'll be disagreeing with God because God says without Jesus Christ, you're an enemy of Christ. You're an enemy of God. And to to read that when we are justified, we have peace with God, that means there's no division now. There's no separating from us, from uh, from God. We, We have peace with God. Can you imagine being able to approach a holy God and be at peace? Not worry about your sin, not worry about the things that you've done, not worry about that, but be at peace with God. That's a great blessing, and it's the blessing of the justified. We have peace with God. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1, 21, that we were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works works before we trusted Jesus. But then we trusted Jesus as our Savior. He forgave us of all of our sins. He gave us his righteousness, and we have peace with God. We have peace with God, and it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says it like this. He, that's Jesus, is our peace. You can never have peace with God unless you have Jesus. He is our peace. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have his righteousness. There's no way for you to have peace with God. But if you have Jesus, you have peace with God. That means every Christian should be able to be comfortable talking to God. Every Christian should be able to be bold in approaching the throne of grace because we have peace with God. The Bible tells us also we have not only access to this acceptance by the Lord and peace with God, but we also have access to God. Look at verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. What is grace? Grace is, as we all know, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. Uh, I don't want to get what I deserve. If I got what I deserved, I would not go to heaven. I would go to hell, and so would you. But grace, God gives us grace, saving grace, and then daily grace as well. He gives us grace so that we don't receive what we deserve. He gives us grace so that we enjoy his many blessings, even though we're not deserving of his blessings. He gives us grace. And the Lord says this unmerited favor is is something in wherein we stand. You see, grace isn't something that you look for and you have to search for it and wonder, oh, God will just give me grace. The Lord says you're standing in it. You're standing in grace. The very fact that you're saved is grace, and God never takes his grace away from you. He gives you constant grace. So regardless what happens, regardless what you go through, a Christian should experience peace and grace. We have access to this grace in which we stand. We are, we are, we've appropriated that grace by faith, 
And then we have access, another passage tells us in Hebrews 10, another access, and that is we have access by prayer to God. So you're standing in grace, the goodness of God. He doesn't give you what you deserve. You're standing in grace, and you have access to talk to him at any time. And he's our high priest, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, and so we have access to God. And that passage tells us in Hebrews that we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. Not reluctantly, not scared, come boldly to the throne of grace. You have this big problem, what do you do with it? Well, you usually talk to other people about it, and you seek advice, but many times we fail to just approach boldly the throne of grace and ask God about it and talk to him about it and, live and, and unburden our hearts to the Lord. The Lord says, come boldly. You don't have to be ashamed. Come boldly to the throne of grace, and the Lord will help us. So we have this access. We also have a grand prospect, and that's found in verse 2. And that, that is, it says in verse 2, verse, the last part of the verse, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, hope, I've defined hope many times, and uh, I hope you understand, I hope you understand, that's the wrong use of that hope. That's a different use of the hope, but we use that term so often. But Bible hope is not something, well, I hope this will happen, but I'm not sure. You know, like if, you're, if your wife's planning something for dinner, and you don't know what it is, and you have your favorite meal in mind, and you hope that she has that. Well, you don't know for sure, but Bible hope is not like that. Bible hope is something that's steadfast and sure, and you're assured of it because God promised it. That's Bible hope. And Bible hope, there's no question about it, and there's no doubt about it. We have Bible hope, and that hope is, he says, we, we, our hope is in the glory of God. Look at verse 2 again by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, what's the glory of God? Well, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is the express image of God. It says like this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's Jesus. The, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. John 1.14 says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now someday we're going to experience that glory. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, just a couple pages from where you are. Romans 8, verse 17. And if, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So you're going through trouble. The Lord says it's not worthy to be compared for the good that's coming. What is that good? I believe that good is we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to have a body like him. We're going to be sinless like him. We won't be God, but we'll be like him in the sense that we're sinless and we have a glorified body like he has throughout all eternity. And I tell you, that makes you rejoice. <laughs> rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are someday going to be like Jesus. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 
verses 2 and 3. says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, that doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Do we rejoice in the hope of being like Jesus? Sometimes, you know, we talk about, all of us do, we're going through trouble, we're losing our health and things like that, and I can't wait for my glorified body. And all we really have in mind is, I don't want to ache anymore. I'd like to get back the same color of hair I used to have. I'd like to get my teeth back. I'd like to have my hearing restored and, and all that, you know. I won't have to wear glasses and I won't do this or that. You know, I, it's just restoring this body. But that's not all there is. You see, when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. And when we look forward to that new body, we should think not just the physical part, but also we'll be like Jesus. We'll never have to be concerned about sinning again. You ever get aggravated at yourself? I do. A thought will go through my mind, and I'll say, Lord, please, I'm sorry. Why did that thought go through mine? I know I'm the preacher, and I'm not supposed to do that. And uh, you think, well, what's he thinking? Well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I ask you, what are you thinking? <laughs> You're not going to tell me either. We all have things that bother us about our, our, our sinful nature, you know. It comes up in our, in our hearts and our minds and sometimes in our actions. And I wish we hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't have thought that. I, Lord, I'm sorry. You'll never have to experience that again when you get to glorified body. We have the hope of the glory of God, the blessings of the justified. We have a great prospect. We are going to be like Jesus. We also have a gratifying perception. Look at verse 3. Back in chapter 5, verse 3, it says, And not only so, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribu- that tribulation worketh patience. Here's our, our gratifying perception. And that is we glory in tribulations. Now, we don't naturally do that, do we? Something bad happens, you get a, trip, a phone call that's, un, that's, that's not good at all and, and it brings sorrow to your heart or you go through an experience and just uh, it just hurts. And then, then you say, thank you, Lord, so much. We don't do that very often. But the Lord says... If we truly understand what it's like to be just, what it means to be justified, declared righteous, and all that that involves, we'll be able to look at trials and say, thank you, Lord. I rejoice. Why do we do that? Well, we know God has a purpose. God doesn't, God's not in heaven saying, oh, I forgot about so-and-so. Oh, they just went through. I, I, I wish I hadn't let that happen. I'll try to fix it. I'll work it together for good. No, God doesn't do that. God knows everything that's happening in our life. He's big enough to be concerned about the little details, and in case we don't understand that, he gives us a detail to help us understand. He says, I know the number of hairs on your head. That's pretty, that's pretty detailed. And that's a subtraction thing for most of us. God keeps up with it. God knows the very hairs of our head. So does that, that means God's, willing to be bothered with all of our problems. We can take anything to him. He already knows about it, and he knows everything that's going on in your life. And when this happened that brought you great trouble and trial, the Lord says, if you only could see it like I see it, you would say, thank you, Lord. 
Now, a trial doesn't just involve you, by the way. We have to understand that our trials many times involve somebody else, and maybe somebody else, and maybe somebody else. Maybe the trial we're going through is being observed by a person who wonders if we're real. And they find out, wow, their faith is real, and they tell somebody else, and they tell somebody else about Jesus, and this person gets saved, and then their life has all these repercussions, you know, all these results, and God sees all of that. He knows it all, and he says, if you only knew what you were going through, you'd say, thank you, Lord. And so he says in verse 3 that, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Now, we need to understand the word glory. The word glory in the original, in the Greek language, the exact same word in this, in this passage is translated three different ways. It's translated glory here. It's translated rejoice in verse 2, and it's translated joy in verse 11. The translators just use a variety of words to describe the same thing, and that is we rejoice we rejoice in God. We glory in God. It's talking about rejoicing. And why? Because we know something. It says, we know that tribulation worketh patience. We glory in tribulations because we know. Now, he goes through a series of things that we want to try to describe. And that is, he gives us the purpose of our trials. The purpose of God is this. Trials have a purpose, and tribulation works patience. Now, the word patience means steadfastness. It means constancy. It means endurance. The verb form has the idea of remaining under the load. So patience is only learned when you go through a load and you remain under that load of pressure and you respond correctly, and God teaches you patience. Tribulations have a reason, and they're to teach you patience. Is God patient? Sure he is. I mean, just think of yourself, or me think of myself. Is God patient with us? He sure is. God wants us to be like him, and so he sends us tribulation that will work patience. I imagine in your life you've known somebody, maybe it was while you were in school, and uh, you know, your parents didn't have much, and you came to church at school, and you had on the best clothes you can, and this guy or this girl, she had fashionable clothes all the time. If it was tennis shoes, she had the most, they had the most expensive tennis shoes. I don't understand people who have this fetish almost of tennis shoes. I mean, it's okay. I have a grandson like that. He has, I think, 100 pair of them. <laughs> he just loves tennis shoes. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that, but... You know, there's some people who, when you were growing up, you thought they have everything. And then you got to be 16, and I remember when I got 16, my first car, when I bought my first car, was $100, and it was a 1951 Dodge, and I've said before, it's like a pregnant turtle. It was green, four doors, and shaped like this. <laughs> Had a flathead six, <laughs> fluid drive. I'd like to have that car now. <laughs> but it wasn't a sporty car at all. But you remember those people when they turned 16, they drove up with a, uh, maybe a BMW, but today might be a BMW or something like that. Why? Because their parents bought it for them. And you said, they're spoiled kids. <laughs> well, what's usually true of a person, especially if they're the only child and they're spoiled like that? What's usually true of them? 
They don't have any patience. <laughs> they want everything now because they've gotten it that way. And they're not good with people. They don't understand people who are going through troubles. They're not understanding. Why? Because they haven't gone through the tribulations. One of the worst things you can do to your child is to give them everything they want. One of the worst things you can do for your child is protect them from all things that are, that are uh, you know, tense or uh, harmful. I remember as, as I was a pastor in West Virginia in my early years, I had parents to tell me, you know, we don't want to take our child to a funeral. It was just too disturbing. Well, my kids went with me to funerals when they were little kids. I mean, I was the preacher, and I was preaching the funeral. I'd bring them to the funeral. Why? And I'd have them go up by the casket and look in and see the dead body. Why? That's a part of life. They need to understand that. And if you protect them from everything and don't let them see or don't let them experience, they'll grow up as kids who don't have any patience because they never suffered persecution or tribulation. They will. It'll come, but they won't be prepared for it. So what's God's reason for tribulation? It works patience. And then he says patience works something, works experience. The word experience means approvedness. It's the result of trial. It's integrity that comes by going through trials and responding correctly, and you grow up and you learn as experience. So tribulation works patience, patience, experience, and experience hope. Hope is that settled assurance that God is going to do what he, what he promised to. And even though the trials don't look that way, even though the trials seem to say entirely different, we have this hope. We know that God will do it because he sent us through tribulation. We learned patience, and patience gave an experience, and experience developed hope in us that we can trust the Lord in all situations. We don't have to fret. God's in control, and that's hope. And then he says, hope makes not ashamed. You see, a person who trusts the Lord will never be disappointed by God. If you've ever been disappointed by God, you didn't understand it completely. And the Lord wants to bring us to the place where we are not disappointed by God. We're not ashamed. We're not ashamed because the Lord has worked in our life. Tribulation works patience, patience experience, experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. And then notice also the presence of God. Look at verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. By the Holy Ghost, given a, God gives us this gratifying perception, of, a way to determine, to look at things, because he has given us his spirit to live in us. And so we have the presence of God living in us. The Holy Ghost is given to us. Now, some people of different doctrinal persuasions think that you'll get the Holy Ghost if you pray enough after you get saved. You know, that you'll receive the Holy Ghost later as a second work of grace. That is not scriptural. I know there are people who believe that. Uh, they're lovely Christians, and they, they believe that. I've had good friends like that. But I don't believe it's scriptural. Because in Romans, the Lord tells us, if you have not the Spirit of God, you are none of His. So you can't be saved if you don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God leads you to Christ. Then when you get saved, the Spirit of God indwells you. And the Lord says there's no such thing today as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit of God. If you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of His. And so we have the presence of God. 
that gives us this perception that helps us to understand that he loves us. You see, the Spirit of God lives in us, and who is God? God is love. That's one of his characteristics. And since love lives inside of us, it's going to shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. And so if you're a Christian and you're just all, you just don't love people at all, I mean, you just have a really tr- rough time with that. You just don't love people. There's a question whether you really know the Lord. Because God says when the Spirit of God moves in you, he sheds abroad his love in your heart. And so you, it's interesting <laughs> that you might be an uncaring person, but when you get saved, God changes that. You start to love people. And God wants it to be that way because we have the Spirit of God living in us. I perceive everything will be right because the Holy Spirit lives in me and says, I love you and I'm a God of love. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. And then also, this gratifying perception is based on the purchase of God. Look at verse 8, a great verse. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we look at problems and we can have the right perception because we know God loves us so much that he gave us his only son who died for us. I am so important to God that he was willing to die for my sins. And he did. And when did he die for us? When we were weak, it says without strength, and when we were ungodly sinners. I've I've written it down like this. When we, were, when we were weak and wicked, before we got saved, we were weak and wicked. And you know, every once in a while, after we're saved, we act weak and we act wicked. And some people say this. Well, if you got saved and later in your life you do something wrong, you lose your salvation, you have to be saved all over again. Let me remind you something. God saved you when you were weak and when you were wicked. You think, and it's by grace, you didn't deserve it. Do you think later, if you experience some weakness and wickedness in your life, that God's going to unsave you or take away your salvation? No, your salvation in the beginning was not based on your character, that you were, that you were strong and, and righteous. It was, it was it, the Lord found you when you're weak and wicked. And when those characteristics start coming back up in your life, the Lord says he'll forgive you. But he says, I won't. I won't throw you away because I didn't save you because you qualified. I saved you when you didn't qualify, and it was all by grace. And you're continually saved by grace. I am saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. I'll be the Lord's forever because he saved me by his grace. So justification gives us possessions to enjoy. Great privilege, acceptance by God, access to God, great prospect. We'll be like Jesus someday, and great perception and that is that we know that tribulation, that we can rejoice in tribulation. And we don't have to look at things like other people look at it. We can trust the Lord and thank him and live with confidence. And then the second thing is this. There's a promise to embrace. Simply is this. Here's the promise. Verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. As a Christian, I'm justified. There's something I never have to worry about, and that is going to hell. I'm not going to go to hell. I, I can tell you tonight, today, boldly, 
I know I'm going to heaven. I will not go to hell. That's not pride. That's believing God. Because God says, when, I trust, when you trust me as your Savior, I give you my righteousness, I forgive you of all my sins, and you will not be condemned. I believe that. And therefore, I can say, I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. Can you say that? If you put your faith in Jesus, you can. If you put your faith in your performance, you can't. But I'm going to heaven because of Jesus I will, I will be saved from wrath. The wrath's coming, the wrath of God. That's coming upon a lot of people. The Bible describes it when you die, the Lord says, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you'll go to hell. But then the Lord says there's coming out in the, in the future, the great white throne. And when Jesus sits on the great white throne, that's when the earth and the heavens are going to flee away. And that's when Peter says it's going to melt with, melt with fervent heat. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. And the, the earth, earth and the heavens, we know them today, will be no more. There will be found no place for them. And I saw him that sat upon that throne. And it was a great white throne. And he brings before him all these unsaved people because it says death and hell were delivered up before him. So at the great white throne, God brings hell out because he's destroyed the earth and hell's in the middle of the earth right now. So he brings all the inhabitants of hell up before him at the great white throne. And one thing is true of everybody at that great white throne, and that is they're all cast alive into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. I'll never go there. I'll never go to that great white throne. And neither will you if you trust Jesus as your Savior. As I said a while ago, if a person came in, they're really bad sinner, and they just today trust Jesus as their Savior, I can say to them with assurance, if your faith is in what Jesus did for you, you called upon him to save you, then you will not go to hell. You can count on it. You'll go to heaven. No condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And so we're promised this because of Christ's death, and we're also promised it because of his life. Look at verse 10, the latter part of the verse. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. As the scripture says in another place, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Because Christ lives, I will live. He will never die again. He died on the cross. He'll never die again. And he always is standing for me. And so I'm guaranteed that I'll not experience wrath because he died for me and he lives for me. And there's one last thing we see in this passage. It's in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God. That's the word rejoice. That's the word glory. Same, ver- same word. We joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And the word atonement there is the word that's sometimes translated reconciliation. So, Not only so, but we also joy in God. Do you joy in God? Do you rejoice in God? We should, because without him, we would have nothing. We would not have any of the spiritual blessings. See, it's interesting, this passage, that everything is centered around Jesus. Verse 1 says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, by whom, speaking of Jesus. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, justified by his blood. Saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, reconciled to God by the death of his son. Saved by his life. Verse 11, 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation, the atonement. He says, it's all because of Jesus. It's only fitting then, because all of it is dependent upon Jesus, that we praise God. And he says, we joy in God. We rejoice in God. We're happy in God. Are you happy today as a Christian? We should be. And if troubles have come down upon you and made you sad, if things in your life are going wrong and it just makes you lose your joy, the Lord would just kindly rebuke you today and say, that's not right. That's not right. Everything you got when you were justified is still there. The troubles don't cancel any of that out. Look at it as only God can see it, and what you can't see, just leave to him and say, Lord, I trust you. I'm not going to quit serving you. I'm going to quit. I'm going to keep serving you because I trust you and I love you. And your love for me is constant and it never wavers. And I will never go to hell. I'm going to have a glorified body someday. And all these blessings are mine, Lord. Please help me not to be so discouraged. And that's what we all need. I've been through those times. I'm sure you have too. Maybe some of you are going through them right now. I've been through those times when I've been discouraged and uh, sort of down. But the Lord rebukes and says, don't do that. Trust me. All things will work together for good to those that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You see, I have a privilege as a child of God, and that is I can talk to God anytime. And I can just talk to him about my troubles, and then I can let him talk to me through his word. And there's open avenue to the Lord. You see, many times people get aggravated down on this earth and say, well, I tell you what, it's not, who you, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Have you been through that? <laughs> you know, somebody else got a job promotion, and you should have, but it was they knew somebody. Now, that's not very good down here, but let me tell you something. That's the way it is to get to heaven. It's who you know. And there's only one person to know to get you to heaven, and that's Jesus. It's who you know, and that's Jesus Christ. I read an illustration. A little boy once stood outside the palace gates of Buckingham Palace in London. He wanted to talk to the king, but was sternly rebuked by the guard at the gate. He rubbed a grimy hand to his cheek to wipe away a tear. Just then, long, just then along came a well-dressed man who asked the little fellow to explain his troubles. When he heard the story, the man smiled and said, Here, hold my hand, Sonny. I'll get you in. Just you never mind those soldiers. The little boy took the, the proffered hand and, to his surprise, saw the soldiers leap to attention and present arms as the newfound friend approached. Past the guard, he was led along carpeted halls, through wide-flung doors, and on through a glittering throng right up to the throne of the king. He had taken the hand of the prince of Wales, the king's son. Through him, he had gained access. It's a glorious thing to have access, to have acceptance, and to know that the war is over and that God no longer looks upon us with disfavor and wrath. It is far better to have access 
and those who have taken the, the proffered, the pierced hand of, of the king's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, have access. What a standing. We stand in grace. Enjoy your access. <laughs> Enjoy your relationship with the Lord. Smile. Everything's all right. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for allowing us to try to explain this passage. And Lord, I pray that every Christian here will just take from this that you have a purpose in all things and nothing in this life will change our justification if we've trusted Jesus. And I pray we'll live that life with our heads held high and go through trouble knowing that we joy in God We rejoice in him. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. He's in charge. So help us to do that as Christians. But then, Lord, there might be somebody here today who's never trusted Jesus. They can't go to heaven because they don't know your son. I pray that today they would realize Jesus died for them on the cross, paid for their sins, rose from the grave the third day, and wants to be their Savior. And he will be if they'll just come to him in repentance and faith and call on him to save them. I pray they do that today in Jesus' name.